2: It has been kind of a rough four years for people who believe in free trade, who think, you know, people in one country should be able to sell stuff to people in other countries without too much trouble.
3: As president, Donald Trump started a trade war with China, also some trade fights against some of our allies. He pulled out of the negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He ripped up NAFTA and replaced it with something that seems, frankly, pretty similar, but has a different name. And now, of course, we're going to have a new president, Joe Biden. But Biden has not really said
2: that much about trade. He's going to be the president, but it's unclear exactly what he's going to do. The United States used to be this beacon of free trade. For decades, president after president, Democrats and Republicans negotiated one free trade deal after another. And now it's been the complete opposite. What happened? Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Robert Smith. Today on the show, you give us 22 minutes and we will pack in 240 years of free trade history. Maybe 244 years, because this is actually a rerun we published four years ago. But we have kept all the best parts. We have a Scotsman kidnapped by mysterious figures, possibly an apocryphal story, a hippie dream of world peace, world peace, and revolutionaries in the streets. In the streets. All connected by the most important idea in economics. An idea that at least is among the most important in economics, free trade. By the way, most of this episode was recorded, as we said, in 2016. But we've got an exciting update at the end.
3: Relatively exciting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase.
3: I don't care what anybody says, Adam Smith is super interesting, he's key on trade, and you know, we're an economics show, have not talked about Adam Smith in years, and his big book, The Wealth of Nations, came out in 1776.
2: It's perfect. This is a show about America and trade. In three acts. So, chapter one, Madam, I'm Adam.
3: That's like an
2: anagram, a palindrome. Is it? I'm reading it backwards. It's true. (laughs) So,
3: okay, for Adam Smith, we talked to an economic historian named Doug Irwin. And we said, all right,
1: let's start by telling the world how amazing Adam Smith is. Adam Smith lived with his mother. He was a bachelor. He didn't go out at night. Come on, you can do better than that. You of all people, Doug Irwin. (laughs) He was captured by gypsies. He was kidnapped. Wait, wait, what? For real? Yes.
3: Adam Smith? The the Adam Adam Smith? Smith.
1: He almost was lost to humanity. Okay,
3: that's possibly apocryphal, that story. But, But what is true is Adam Smith grew up and basically invented economics as we know it. And a key part of that was thinking about trade in this way that was really revolutionary and that, frankly, is still
2: central to the way economists think. So at the time, people measured the wealth of a country, the wealth of a nation, if you will, by how much gold the country had.
3: And the and pile of gold is what makes you rich. It's gold.
2: That's right. Who doesn't want gold? And everything a country did was to get more gold. They would explore. They would go to war. They would take over continents. And they would trade. International trade was a gold-making machine. You send cloth or grain to France, France sends you gold. But the
3: key to the way people thought about trade at the time was you wanted to keep that gold in your country. And the way you do that is you do not buy stuff from other countries, or at least you want to buy less from them than they buy from you. You want to run
2: a trade surplus. That's how you get a big pile of gold in your country. So countries put up high tariffs, taxes on imports, and they put quotas to discourage people from buying stuff from other countries. They basically said, keep the gold here, buy everything in this country. Now, Adam Smith
3: looked
1: at these policies and just said, that just doesn't make sense. And he said, it's not how much gold you have, it's how high your wages are and the standard of living of people, not what's uh, socked away in the government coffers.
3: The standard of living of ordinary people. That's just how much stuff can ordinary people buy. And those high tariffs and quotas, they made it so people could not buy as much stuff in Great Britain at the time.
1: They had a lot of restrictions on imported food. It's just harming working people by making them buy high-priced food.
3: Adam Smith says this, at the time, revolutionary thing. He says, get rid of those tariffs and quotas. Food will get cheaper. Lots of things will get cheaper. People's standard of living will rise. They'll
2: be able to buy more stuff. The nation will get wealthier. Now, there are farmers who are selling expensive food who might be temporarily hurt. But the idea, Adam Smith said, was that those farmers, they will change jobs. They can start, say making cloth, which maybe they can make better and more cheaply than people in other countries. And then they can trade that cloth. Yeah, I mean, Smith steps back and says, free trade can make everybody better off. And so he sort of writes the original get rich quick, (laughs) but for nations, right? The Wealth of Nations is the name of his book. And the book is a big hit in Britain, and it makes its way to America.
1: Uh, The Wealth of Nations was brought over on ships to the United States. And Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, they all read Adam Smith. We have the Constitution, 1787, first Congress meets, 1789. The second bill they pass is a tariff bill. What? It's one of the first things they do because the government needs revenue. They had the book, Jacob. They read the book. They ignored
2: the book.
3: Yeah, the tariff starts out as a way to get revenue. But as soon as the U.S. has any industry to speak of, factory owners start going to Congress and saying, hey, we need more tariffs to protect us from foreign competition. And Congress agreed.
2: And from that point forward in American history, there are ups and there are downs, but pretty much we are a protectionist country. And this political outcome, it makes sense when you look at it. You know, it's really a classic thing. You have
3: this relatively small number of people who benefit from a tariff, and they care a lot about it. You know, these are people with factories who would have to compete against imports. So, of course, they're going to push for a tariff. They're going to go to Congress and say, look, I'm going to go out of
2: business. All my workers are going to lose their jobs. You have to protect me. But then you have basically everybody else in the country – who are going to pay more for their stuff as a result. But it's not as big of a deal because it's not like their job or their company depends on it. They aren't going to get on a horse and ride to Washington, D.C. to yell at their senators and complain that their stockings, say, cost two cents more. How dare you, sir? Yeah, this is like a political truth. You know,
3: when you have a concentrated benefit, in this case, the factory owners, up against a diffuse cost, everybody else, the concentrated benefit usually wins, even if it's much smaller than the cost. And that's really the story of Chapter 1. Tariffs win, Adam
2: Smith loses. And tariffs in the U.S. stayed really high for a really long time. But that finally changes largely because of one guy. I'm going to take this one. Chapter 2. A man, a plan, a free trade hero, Cordell Hull. Not a palindrome. True. But this was the man who unleashed free trade upon the entire world. Was he abducted by gypsies as a baby? (laughs) No, but he was a hillbilly
1: from Tennessee.
3: Doug Irwin told us Cordell Hull grew up in a log cabin. I read that when Hull was a kid, he would go on these trips where they would make a raft out of a bunch of logs, float on the logs down the river, and then sell the logs in Nashville.
2: In the South where Hull was growing up, and this is around the turn of the 20th century, most of the politicians were anti-tariff. Not because they'd read their Adam Smith and thought everybody should get cheaper goods. Obviously. But because the farmers in the South grew tobacco and cotton, which people all over the world wanted to buy, they were exporters. They loved free trade. But the U.S. factory
3: owners, these are mostly northern Republicans at the time, they mostly wanted to sell stuff to customers in the
2: U.S. So they wanted protection from foreign competition. They wanted tariffs. Cordell Hall becomes a lawyer, then a congressman from Tennessee. And during World War I, he has this revelation. He realizes tariffs aren't just about economics. There is something much bigger at stake.
1: And as he looked at the war, he said there were economic causes to this war. Those causes are that there was protectionist policies, the lack of international, free international trade, and that led to political frictions which led to war. And therefore, my mission, my life goal is to bring about freer trade because that will bring about world peace.
2: Think of how amazing this argument was at the time. He was saying Germany and France would not have needed to fight in those trenches if they had traded more stuff with each other. If there were thousands of businessmen in Paris and Berlin saying, hey, don't shoot them. Those are my customers. But that argument
1: didn't really didn't really convince the world. It wouldn't be the first thing you would say caused World War One. But he just, Cordell Hull latched onto it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it.
3: In the 30s, Hull becomes FDR's secretary of state. And he does have some success. Congress
2: passed this law that said
3: the president could negotiate lower tariffs with other countries.
2: Still, Irwin says that Hull's obsession, that the key to world peace was free trade, that all you need, man, is free trade. This just rang false in the
1: 1930s. People thought he was nuts. The reason why there's Nazi Germany is because they didn't trade enough, because they didn't have free trade. And even Roosevelt, President Roosevelt thought, you know, he's a really a little bit misplaced here. He's, you know, the world's, you know, burning up around us. And he's talking about trade agreements. And, and people said, that's just not it. He's off base.
2: And there was something else. There was another reason why people were not taking Cordell Hull
1: seriously. He also spoke with a lisp. He spoke like Elmer Fudd. Dean Acheson in his memoirs, he, he was at the uh, State Department at the time. He said, these off-enunciated words due to a speech impediment emerged as reciprocal twade program to reduce by th- This is sort of mean. I think it's th- mean. So this is sort of mean. Pe- people are making fun of him at the they time. They are. They are behind his back. But we really haven't reached the mo- Hull moment because he does win. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Right after the break. <laughs> right after
2: the break. <laughs> how Cordell Hull changed the world.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care.
3: Cordell Hull's moment came because of World War II
0: and the
1: state department is not responsible for fighting the war that's the so they're spending the entire war thinking about what ha, what comes next and there's this moment there's this pause nobody knows which direction to go
2: in and cordell hull steps forward and says how about this direction absolutely i'm going to play some music under you mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. give me a cordell hull speech that is the most idealistic the most visionary, the best possible pitch of his
1: for free trade after the war? I'd say this is the pitch. By turning inward after World War I, the United States abandoned its international responsibility and we had World War II. That was a grievous mistake. We cannot repeat this mistake after World War II. We have to become an economic leader, a political leader in the world, and an essential component to ensuring peace in the post-war period is having a strong economic foundation. If people are fully employed and trading with one another and they're economically prosperous, they'll have a vested stake in preserving peace. If they're unemployed and there's economic rivalry and bitterness and resentment about you know, other countries stealing our jobs or this or that, it's going to lead to a political breakdown and lead potentially to another war. That's
2: a pretty good pitch. Yeah. And
3: imagine hearing it as as World War II was winding down. You know, the world was exhausted and devastated. And Cordell Hull stepped forward with this plan, this plan he'd been working on for decades.
1: And the president, uh, President Roosevelt, strongly supported all this. And um, that was his moment. So Cordell Hull is standing there.
2: He finishes his pitch and there's dead silence in the room. And then all of a sudden in the back, Dean Acheson, the man who had mocked him for a speech impediment, stands up and starts a slow clap and locks eyes with Cordell Hall. And then everybody starts to stand out. ho, 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 Hull! The whole room is going crazy. Ho Hull! 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 In 1945, Cordell Hall wins the Nobel Peace Prize. That was amazing. You pictured it. Astonishingly,
3: only the last sentence was true. The whole thing about Atchison in the room, that's from the movie you just made up in your head. But it's a John he Hughes actually movie. actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1945, he won the Nobel Prize, partly for his work creating the United Nations, also for his idea that trade barriers are, and I'm quoting from the award speech here,
2: quote, barriers also to lasting peace. A couple of years after that, Hull's free trade dream comes true. 23 countries create, wait for it. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. (laughs) GATT. It is the GATT, the first really big mechanism for free trade between countries. And the amazing thing about this was that the usual people who would stand in the way of free trade, you know, U.S. manufacturers, all of a sudden they looked around in the world and said, you know what, we're the only factories left standing. This is a chance for us to sell to the world. Yeah. So the manufacturers and for that matter, the unions, too. Like they were
3: like, yeah, this will be more jobs for us. Let's lower tariffs so we can sell more stuff to the rest of the world.
2: And, Jacob, look what happened. The GATT ground-down trade barriers around the world. In 1945, at the end of the war, tariffs on imports to the U.S. were around 30%. 30%. Fifty years later, by the mid-'90s, tariffs had fallen to 5%. From 30% to 5%. And that's that's essentially the end of,
3: of Chapter 2. Cordell
2: Hull, and for that matter, Adam Smith, they won. Chapter 3. This is our last chapter. Chapter 3... Able was I, ere I saw Seattle. A palindrome. Close enough. So if free trade won, why does it seem like we're still arguing about this? Why are we talking about trade all the time? I called up Joe Stiglitz on this. He is famously sort of skeptical of a lot of
3: globalization and of of parts of trade. He's also a famous economist, won the Nobel Prize, the Econ Prize. And back in the 90s, he was an advisor to Bill Clinton and worked at the World Bank. And at that time, when he got to Washington, he noticed something strange.
1: One of the realizations I had was that the free trade agreements were not free trade agreements. They were just called free trade agreements.
3: The deals did lower
2: some tariffs, but remember, tariffs were already super low. A bigger deal, according to Stiglitz anyway, is all these other things going on in these trade agreements. So let's say a a corporation disagrees with a foreign government about a certain regulation.
3: Yeah, that trade deals have special like panels to settle those disagreements. The deals also had stuff about like how long drug patents were good in different countries. And economists started looking at all this stuff and saying, wait, what?
1: There was a broad sense that these shouldn't be in a trade agreement. They were actually restricting trade. And it wasn't
2: just economists.
3: This is the sound of thousands of people chanting and protesting in the streets of Seattle. The year was 1999, and everybody was there to protest a meeting of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Uh, Robert Smith, you were a cub reporter in those streets.
2: Well, as we saw yesterday, I mean, clearly there are enough police officers here, although I don't see them now and I, I don't really know where they are. Um, I'm sure they're ready to shut down any protest. You pulled the tape. How did you get that? I didn't think they even recorded things back in 1999. We,
3: we called the station. They pulled it off of, the, <laughs> off of the wax cylinder and sent it to us.
2: Uh, ba- baby Robert Smith. It sounds like, what, were you 12 years old? Your voice hadn't changed yet. So we're in the streets of Seattle. People are protesting the WTO, which is the modern incarnation of the GAT, the thing that Cordell Hull inspired, GATT had changed its name to WTO, World Trade Organization. Yeah, that had happened just a couple years before. That happened in the mid-'90s. And I have this theory that I totally just made
3: up that's probably false. But my theory is that that was a huge branding mistake, changing the name. Because, you know, think of GAT, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade. That is so boring— You don't even get to the end of the acronym before you're like, I got to go do
2: something else. But then you hear World Trade Organization, WTO. It sounds like a Bond villain stroking a cat going, we are going to lower tariffs, Mr. Bond, and there's nothing you can do to stop us. Robert, I'm
3: not even going to try and do that voice, but, but I would say that Bond villain would also be saying like, and we're going to monkey with your regulations. We're going to change the
2: dynamics of power between corporations and governments. And that was the amazing thing you saw in Seattle. The protesters were not carrying signs that said, oh, we need higher tariffs on sneakers, say. They were there dressed as sea turtles saying, oh, what the WTO does is ruin environmental regulations around the world.
3: So, Robert, that was where we left it in 2016 when we originally did this show. Uh, We are here now in 2020. And, you know, it kind of seems like the world just sort of got tired of the US drama over free trade. It seems like the world is sort of moving on without us. Uh, just a few days ago, China and a bunch of other countries in Asia and the Pacific signed a new trade deal. Australia's in it, Japan is in it. Uh, there's some debate over how big of a deal this deal actually is. It doesn't get into a lot of the rules and regulations, but uh, it does lower tariffs.
2: Classic. When we did this show four years ago, the world was debating the Trans Pacific Partnership, the TPP. That was a deal among the US and a bunch of countries in Asia, but not China. China was not included. This new deal is the reverse. China is in, China is leading it, and the US is not. This week, after that deal was signed, uh, Joe Biden has said
3: that the US and other democracies should, quote, set the rules of the road
2: for trade, because if we don't, he said, China will. But think about what Sticklitz is saying here. If we're arguing about which nation gets to drive, which nation gets to set the rules of the road, are we really talking about this concept of free trade? Robert Smith, we got a TikTok. Boy, do we ever. Uh, I just watched one of them about the stock market and the economy and the difference between the two things. And it was weird. It was truly bizarre. And I showed it to my teenage girls, and they laughed and they agreed. Yes, it's totally weird. You should all check it out. It's at Planet of Money.
3: Our show today was produced by Elizabeth Kulas. Uh, the rerun was produced by Irina Huang and Nick Fountain. Special thanks to Mike Moore, former head of the WTO, who talked to us but didn't make it into the show. Also, Michael A. Butler, author of Cordell Hull, cautious visionary.
2: <laughs> I am an uncautious visionary. I'm Robert Smith.
3: I'm Jacob Goldstein. This is NPR. Thanks for listening.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viori.com slash NPR. This
3: message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe
1: at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen.